Hello and welcome to What We've Learned with me, Steve Kemish, and with her, Shane Redding. Hello, Shane. Hi, Steve. How are we? Good, actually. Um, this time of year is always one to both reflect, which of course our podcasts are always about reflections and, and learnings, but also sort of looking ahead and, oh my goodness, this is a great episode. What an episode, Shane. Absolutely right. Perfect timing for it as well, because, you know, we're keen always to understand what the perception of marketing is. How is us marketing folk uh, aren't just seen as the balloons and T-shirt kids? Uh, and no better guest, um, Estelle Jurado, who is actually the managing director at Club Med of UK and Northern Europe. Uh, and so her board position is fascinating. But she comes from marketing. And that's really why we were so keen to talk to her and understand not only how does a managing director see the world of marketing, but how do you get from marketing to managing directorship? And equally, how did the journey start? And that's where we begin as I introduce Estelle. So Estelle, it's lovely to have you with us. Thank you so much for making time. Um, I almost want to rush ahead to your current role and, and being the managing director, um, but that would be remiss of me to not talk about marketing as that's where most of our audience are from. But actually, I think we should probably rewind to the start. Perhaps tell us about the journey that you've been on thus far. Sure. Well, thank you, Steve, for, for having me here. Very glad. Um, indeed, I think I had a, a quite unique uh, journey in the way that at the beginning of my, my studies, I wanted to be a teacher. So I don't know if we can find a kind of parallel between you want to be a teacher to grow people, to make an impact, I would say in a humble way, um, to, to, to the people you teach to. And, and as a manager, I think one of your key obsessions is how you, you grow and, and develop your, your talents and your people around you. So maybe if I'm going backwards, um, um, I might see a kind of parallel, but long story short, I wanted to be a teacher. I've, I've graduated at McGill University in Montreal, and that's actually where I had a, a wake-up call. So I found that actually being in an international environment, meeting all those people from different backgrounds, drove me to think that I might be designed for something else than being a teacher, and I might want to uh, blossom in a way um, in, the, um, in the international um, playground, if I can say that. And I think in your personal life, like in your career, you sometimes have those moments what I, that I would call um, enlightenment moments where you have a kind of you know, spark and you think maybe my life could be different. Maybe I haven't think about, I haven't thought about my life in this, under this specific light. So that's exactly what happened for me. And this is the reason why then I uh, carried on uh, with uh, one extra year as a master, with a master degree in international communication and marketing, because that was, I would say, the most natural bridge that I could find between literature, which I studied at McGill, and um, starting my career in, in business, um, especially into marketing, communication, and, and digital marketing. And I received after this, um, after my studies, the best, one of the best piece of advice career-wise, which was start working in an advertising agency because that's where you're gonna learn the most in a very short time frame. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what I, I've learned for six years at DDB, uh, Omnicom Group, uh, as an international brand manager. So I learned to go fast and, and understand fast the different business challenges, whatever 
sector it was. I learned to travel a lot uh, for business and and pitch my ideas and pitch myself as a consultant um, to different people from the Minister of Tourism in Egypt to um, the DDB Managing Director in Japan, etc. So I had a lot of, I would say, matrix management and I had a very broad spectrum of um, missions, tasks and audiences. And I think that's where I learned the most, not only in terms of pure um, strategic and, and uh, e-commerce um, techniques and skills. So but Estelle, also, that's lovely uh, that you, you've really explained. And I think there'll be lots of people listening who perhaps at the start of their careers, you think, oh gosh, you know, I really don't know what I want to do, but that you took your passion for literature and communication and, and found that MA at, at Lille, which, you know, is a, an amazing course and obviously was one of, you know, the digital ones and then to go to um, DDB. But in terms of the communication skills you learnt in the agency, because agency life is quite tough, isn't it? It is a challenging one indeed. And that's why it's always good, I guess, to, to start, I would say, building your career on the most, one of the most challenging uh, area. Um, it's tough in the way that you have to work very long hours. And most of the time, especially when you're a junior, you have a lot to carry on, to, to, to carry, and you have to, you know, finish your presentation in the middle of the night for the, for the morning after and to be fresh uh, to, to present it. But at the same time, you have to, I would say, grow this ability to get into a topic very fast, step back from the topic very fast as well, to jump into something else. And it creates you and it fosters, I think, a very strong agility, intellectual agility, to understand quickly what is a business challenge, what would be the most um, suitable solution I can bring, and um, what would be the, the creative idea, the strategic idea, and the execution. And, and I think it really pushes you to have a very strong structure in terms of methodology of working, to be very efficient, but at the same time, it forces you to always connect the dots. And I think that's one of the strengths I think we all have when we are marketeers and, and then MDs is your capacity to connect dots. You, you see a topic, you read a topic, you're working on a project. And then when you jump into something else, you actually understand the big picture and you can use what you have learned on something else to apply it to the new challenge you're working on. It's, it's funny, isn't it, as well, because at a basic level, um, we all, all three of us, and I'm sure many people listening in know, agencies just work you jolly hard. And that's no bad thing uh, for it to give you the almost the in at the deep end, Estelle, that if you want a life and a career in marketing, you may as well start in one of the most frantic positions in the most hardworking of areas. And, and if you can swim there, you can probably swim anywhere uh, as well as and you've almost that may put people off, but what you've articulated brilliantly is the benefits of being in that fast paced environment is that it feels like it's just accelerated your skills uh, that, and I'm sure as we'll come on to, you've been collecting, as many of us do, those skills that have set you up well as you've moved through your career. And that seems like a really pivotal point, that immersion into a fast pace uh, to collect those skills and succeed at, at rapid pace. I, I totally agree with that because I tend to always repeat to whoever is asking me because the, the fact is that you are stamped as a marketer because you started your career in an advertising agency. And I keep telling to people, well, actually, it's a paradox because you're doing marketing, but the most important skill you have to build 
during this experience is how to sell uh, because you have to sell your idea, your creative strategic ideas, and you are pitching all the time. You are most of the time doing presentation, gaining new clients. Um, you're doing a lot of business developments. So at the end of the day, I think it's quite unfair to think that working in an advertising agency um, builds you as a, as only, I would say, um, a, a marketing expert. As to me, that's where you're actually developing the most important skills in your career, which is how to sell. Um, and that, that's, that's, that makes me think that sometimes it's a bit um, a shame or it's a bit obsolete uh, to think that we need to oppose people who, are know how to, who know how to sell and people who know how to market. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think actually it's uh, perhaps in Western Europe particularly, um, sales is seen as, you know, not, as you say, necessarily uh, an essential skill, which I absolutely see as an essential skill, particularly um, once you make it to board level and bringing people with you and negotiating and, um, yeah, selling your ideas. So I, I completely agree with that. But I think it's, it is interesting, whereas, of course, in the US, and I know you work globally, um, it's seen as a much more positive attribute. You know, it's seen as, as uh, but of course, why wouldn't you want that? Um, so it's funny culturally, those differences. And you must have seen a lot of those in your career. I've seen that because I think the most important bias of this in Western Europe is that we think that selling is, how could I say that, very basic and you, not, you need to sell your product, whatever, or your audiences or your circumstances, etc. Whereas I do believe that a good salesperson is someone who is actually trying to, first of all, understand his clientele, create a bond and create bespoke solution to, to your audience, which is what a marketeer does uh, all the time. So I think if we would see the sales, like the marketing, which is about build a bond, build a relationship, understand your, your, your clients' uh, expectations and needs, and then build a bespoke solution, then we might think sales are actually the most valuable skill that, that one might have. It's about the interpretation of sales, isn't it? I'm Shane, I'm trying to think when, uh, and Estelle, there's utterly no reason why you'll know this, but uh, Shane and I spoke, we always talk about books and I can see the book on my shelf now by Daniel H. Pink about the um, To Sell is Human. Uh, we talked about it on a, one of the previous episodes and, and he talks about the ABC of selling, the modern ABC of selling around attunement, buoyancy and clarity. And it's what you've just articulated. And maybe the perception of selling, maybe over here, maybe in, in the wrong places, is it's a very um, extroverted, almost aggressive skill set. Whereas actually his argument very articulately is we all sell all of the time, whatever our job in our personal lives and our professional lives. And, and that ability to be attuned, particularly the A, is what you've just articulated. Is If you want to communicate with somebody, you really need to understand how they think and how they talk and speak to then start to match into them, which then for me leads very naturally into the world of marketing is if you want to get your message across, you need to know the people you're trying to talk to and how they're going to receive it. it so there's it's, a real blend for sure. It is true. And, and when, when you, you get to be a, um, a managing director or CEO, again, people might think, well, you're not a commercial expert, but actually you spend your time managing people. And at the end of the day, you have to cement people around one unique purpose, around 
uh, one ambition for the for the company and for the team and and all your leadership and influencing skills are very linked to sales processes in a way because again it gets back to to what you just said steve which is you know what your team what does your team need um what do they need also to work better better together um what kind of purpose do they need to to listen to so that they follow you as well so everything to me if you if you come across I might put the finance department on the side, but actually maybe I'm wrong. I think all the departments have a, a sale promise in a way. And actually finance could be involved because as we all know, you can, you can play with figures exactly the way you want, according to what you want to sell to the banks, to your private equity fund, to whoever. So at the end of the day, I think everybody in an organization needs very strong sales skills and, and, we shouldn't split in silos and oppose marketeers and, and salespersons. No, I agree. And, I, and the more we can break down those barriers and respect each other's strengths and learn from each other, the better, I think, um, Estelle. But you went from agency life and decided that you would, the next step would be client side um, and you went into marketing. So what was, what was that next step like for you? Um, yeah, I was, I was frustrated, to be honest, to work only on one tiny piece of the mixed marketing, which is the communication. Um, and I was, I was really keen to explore um, the, the rest of the spectrum in terms of marketing. So about product, pricing, revenue management, um, all the channel distribution, uh, distribution channels. And uh, so I moved to, first of all, to IKKS, which belongs to Zania Group, which is um, the European leader in fashion industry as a, an international brand manager. I was also e-commerce director. And then I moved to Club Med uh, in London. That's where I work today. Uh, and I started as a marketing director as well. And that was fascinating because in both experiences, I was about repositioning the brand, understand both key success factors, but also key failure factors, which we don't work, which we don't talk too much about when we, when you're a marketer. Um, and that was all about actually understanding that an advertising agency is just a tiny piece of a very complex ecosystem where you have to play with your internal constraints, with obviously some political gains or versatility in the organization to again, use influence skills to make sure that you manage to get what you want to, uh, to achieve. Um, so I would say that was interesting because I think that when you're working for an advertising agency, you're very driven by the strategy, the idea, but much less in terms of what would be the return on investment of what I'm doing? What would be the business case? What would be the tools that I would need to sell uh, or to put together to sell this idea and this um, project to my CEO or to any kind of decision maker? So you see a very different um, aspect of the business that is much more complex, I would say, much more business driven. So maybe it's not for everybody, but when you're very results driven, when, we, when you really want to make an impact on business and on teams, I feel that was much more rewarding in a way. To see your work actually deliver some kind of t tangible business value, Estelle, in terms of not exactly. just we've got a brilliant campaign where we got x number of follows or likes or something that's very myopically marketing but 
we've made you know we've made business happen for the for the whole organization exactly because like like any kind of business success is at some point the alignment of a lot of good things that you've put together at the same time and i think both making the right decisions and making it making them sorry at the right time or equally important and when you are on the client side as you as you said Jane you have this kind of comprehensive view of all the leverage you can activate whereas in the advertising agency you're a piece of the jigsaw which is a very important piece because we today work with brilliant agencies and that's absolutely critical for us for the success of our business but you will never know if it, if it was only your piece that brought the success um, and maybe you could have a different impact on other um, business activation levels. Whereas when you're on the client side, I think if you're really result-driven, that's very, very rewarding. On the other side, if you're really driven by pure creativity, pure strategic planning, which I totally respect, then maybe the client side might be frustrating because it doesn't allow you that much time to think about concept and and very quickly you will be asked to 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 execute the concept and do a business case to make sure that there is a strong return on investment on what you have thought about so um i would say so, so I, case. yeah i'm really interested in that because i think that for me and what you've articulated about you, know, you can just hear that pleasure come out when you talk about you know the impact the commercial impact but i've met many brand managers for whom they don't have that link to ROI or they don't you know, see the impact of brand, but they're not necessarily able to tie it all the way through to the business case. Is that something you think special at Club Med that you had the culture or you had maybe a mentor there that help you take those first steps towards that commerciality? Um, I agree with you, Shane. I think most of the time marketers are, or tied up, as you said, and they, they, they don't really bridge what they're doing with the, the business impact, which is a massive shame. I think, I, I don't know if it's a clubmed thing or if it's also linked to the, the, the people and, and your will. My will, for example, has always been as a marketing director and now as a managing director to make sure that marketeers are very much involved in the PNL and in the, um, business challenges. So to me, the, the marketing director has exactly the same accountability as a sales director in terms of sales. Um, and that's the, the magic of both sales and marketing teams working hand in hand together that would allow you to, uh, to deliver outstanding performances. So I think it's, it's really up to the management culture and also the individual will to be involved in this, in this um, commercial part. Because I think a lot of marketers as well, they feel also much, maybe uh, can assume that more comfortable in having the marketing cap because the marketing cap is, well, if it's doing good, it might be because of my campaign, but if it's doing bad, it might be because of the salesperson's bad performances. And, and at the end of the day, we had this discussion with, uh, with uh, Steve earlier, is a salesperson can be easily assessed. Uh, it's kind of black and white. 
white, sorry, the results are, are very crystal clear and, and you can assess if a salesperson is good or bad. The marketeer, there is this blurry area where you will never know if um, his job or her job was um, um, relevant or impactful enough. So I do believe that it's a mix of the climate culture, the management culture, but also the individual um, appetite, I would say, of marketeers to go outside of the scope and really feel that they are accountable in a way um, or another for the business delivery. And, and, and Estelle, I think we can say this, maybe you wouldn't, you're not, you don't strike as an egotistical person at all, but if, if ever a marketeer was listening in who wanted a reason for why they should go and get basically accountable and, and business literate, it's the journey that you've taken. And, and this next step, um, perhaps we can talk about, is that move from, from CMO into managing directorship is a rare one, as, as you and I talked about offline. And was why Shane and I were so keen to talk to you is it's really heartening to see that marketing people can be credible at that level, but it doesn't come easily. As you've said, you need to learn the skills and, and I'm so, as sure as you'll articulate, it isn't just one easy step either, is it Estelle? There can be a few steps to get to that point. It's, it is not a kind of like easy path. You're right, Steve. Um, in my journey, what happened is I had this funny story. Well, I don't know if it's funny, but today I think we'll let you funny. know if it is. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, this this HR director who told me when I was marketing director at Club Med, she told me, "Look, Estelle, if one day you want to be a managing director, um, you would probably, if not surely, need to um, embrace a, a, a full commercial role. Uh, could be commercial director or whatever." Because uh, she said, there is no way you can be from going from marketing director directly to country director or managing director, especially of a big market like the UK. I remember when she told me that I was a bit shocked, but I, I played poker face and I haven't said anything and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I haven't said anything. Um, and uh, and she, she said that and I thought to myself, I said, I thought to myself, there is absolutely no way that I will take a full commercial role because I'm a marketer, I love marketing, I'm convinced that a good managing director is someone who knows very well playing how to play with sales and marketing. I know I will be better than my pure sales colleagues in the MD role because of my marketing expertise. So she can say whatever. Um, I know what I will refuse, but I will wait for the opportunities to, to rise and, and see how it goes. And uh, so that was this discussion. And then um, I had uh, the, the, the chance to have some managing directors, a couple of ones who kind of went and, uh, and left the business. So during a, a period of what, a year or so, I was doing interim uh, managing directors. So when they were arriving and the time they get on onboarded, I was the one in charge when they were leaving. At the time they, they hire someone else, I was in charge. So for one year-ish, um, I was the interim managing director in a kind of uh, unofficial way. And I remember this specific time, we, we talked earlier about this kind of milestone in your career, your, your, your enlightenment moments. And that was one of those ones where um, I met my CEO and, uh, and it, was a very, it was still unclear on who will take over the MD role and for the first time in my life in my career I managed to be very assertive on what I wanted 
in my career. And I said, look, if you think I'm a good number two and maybe I will be number two forever, at least in Club Med, then I prefer you to let me know uh, and then I will, I will make my decisions accordingly. But I haven't said that in a, in a threatening way because I thought that that would be totally um, irrelevant. But I, I said it in a very constructive, positive way, showing that I was ambitious and that I thought that I had everything it takes to at least get the chance to show what I could bring to the business and to the teams as a managing director. So he opened the position, I applied, and I got the, I got the position. That's, um, that's how I, I got appointed MD. And, and the first thing you did is fire that HR person, hopefully. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. <laughs> but uh, I think on that, Estelle, I think that's really lovely what you say there about you know, choosing your moment almost that, you know, to seize the day. And there, there perhaps would be others who are like, oh, I've been asked to do, you know, I'm doing all the hard work. I'm doing the interim job again. Why haven't they asked me? And I, I love your reframing instead of saying, you know, why aren't you appointing me um, as, as MD of saying, do you see me just as number two? And I think that's really interesting. As you say, it's less, perhaps confrontational helps reframe that in somebody's mind but any other advice for somebody who's perhaps in that sort of same position who feels perhaps a little bit stuck as to how they reposition themselves or any skills that you felt you had to equip yourself to do that job um i am a strong believer that if you really want to get and achieve something you have to show to the people that you have the ability, that you have the right um, attitude to take it. And you don't wait for someone to appoint you or for someone to give you a title then to start what you're supposed to do. So I do believe that my advice would be uh, if you're a marketeer and you are willing to move to a managing director role or sales role, um, start embracing um, sales projects. Uh, anything that is commercial or anything that is related to e-commerce where you can link together your sales expertise, your marketing expertise and talk to people who are pure commercial people. You have to show to your, to your management or to whoever uh, who is a decision maker that you have a strong understanding of the business stakes and that you know how a PNL works. So I would advise you as well to, uh, for the people who listen to us, to talk to your, to your manager or talk to your managing director or sales director and really find ways to work with them um, so that you bring an added value for them so that you are also perceived as someone who has a strong commercial acumen. And then you can really leverage that. And, and on top of that, my advice would be as soon as you can, start understanding a PNL. So it could start with, can I have just, you know, 15 minutes of the managing director time to understand how a PNL works and then do your own homework. That could be um, you are marketing director, you are checking, maybe you can have a tiny piece of a, of a business that is not weighing that much for the, for the group, but where you can have some PNL accountability and it doesn't have a strong stake at the group level. Um, so start as early as possible to understand a PNL and to understand commercial um, strategy and action plan, because I would say that 
the big difference between a marketer and a managing director is that the marketer will always think about creativity, strategic ideas, how to spend it, how to spend the money, and much less about what will be the revenue if I offer or if I spend this kind of amount, what would be the estimate of incremental revenue I can bring? And that's probably where the marketeers are perceived as spenders, if I can say that, and not enough as um, commercial business people who, are, who know that at the end of the day, you have to deliver a very strong uh, and profitable PNL. Yeah, there aren't many businesses that survive just spending money. You need to make them as well, don't you? You're quite right. Um, and so you've got into this managing director role and, and kind of skipping quite quickly. You've obviously know what you're doing because you've not just looked after the UK and, and then on to Scandinavia alongside the UK. You're now UK and Northern Europe. So this wasn't just uh, luck. This was hard work. And clearly you have the skills for that managing director role. But I wonder whether we can turn it around the other way, Estelle, just to carry on that thread of now as the managing director, what would your advice perhaps be back to you uh, earlier on in your marketing career or to anyone else that if, what, how does a marketing, how does a managing director really perceive the good and the bad of marketing when you're on the other side? What do we do wrong? What do we do well that, that may be useful advice for people? Sure, well, I, I will say what I think, but again, I'm not, I'm not the, the one to say what you guys think you're doing right or wrong. But uh, from, from my own experience, um, I would probably split the marketing, the marketeers community into two. I think to me, there is, there are, there is a bunch of, of marketeers who are extremely strong and expert in um, a lot of, I would say, technical aspects of everything related to e-commerce and digital and into tech. And they really want to thrive in this field. And in this context, they might not want to be a managing director, which is absolutely fine. So, the, so there are experts and they might be that geeky that an empty role might not be of interest or might not be any way possible because you can't be that geeky and then embrace um, a managing director role that requires a little bit more um, general management and interest in other areas than just marketing. And the other part, which is probably the one we are referring to, were the ones who, who are uh, contemplating uh, to move to a next step as a, as a managing director. And for those ones, um, I think the, the, the first advice would be um, try to, because marketeers are, are excellent in putting themselves in the shoes of a client. And funnily enough, in an organization, they don't do that much with the people they talk to or the people they want to convince. Um, they think they have the best idea, the best strategy, and, um, and the others who don't buy it, they, they don't understand and they are incompetent in a way. So I think, I think the advice would be try very much whenever you do a presentation or whenever you do, um, you need to convince someone to put yourself in the shoes and consider this person as your, as your client. And, and things will change very much because if you're talking to a managing director, you know that when whatever you will present, you have to show clearly and quickly how it will be executed, how it will be workable, how much you will have to spend and how much you think you will get in terms of return, return on investment. 
And you don't have to wait for three meetings to present that because otherwise you might have lost your, your, your audience anyway. So I would start with that. I think the other one is don't get lost or don't lose people with your very expert KPIs. Most of the time, and that's, that's what fascinates me in marketing, is that it evolves so much that now it's more uh, an analytical job than a creative job in a way. Well, bless us, we, we still need creativity in this world, but it's a lot of figures and a lot of Google Analytics you have to, you have to get if you want to be a good marketer. And I think that the, the, sometimes the shame is that marketeers will be so much into their micro nano KPIs that they will lose a big picture. So if you present a dashboard and you show that your con conversion rate has increased by X, Y, Z, and your um, traffic, qualified traffic has increased by this, and then the rebound rate is this and that, and you're happy with those, those figures, but if at the end of the day, you haven't showed that I've spent 100K and I've managed to generate 1 million pounds, then you have just lost your point. Um, and I think it's easy to get lost in very tiny KPIs when you're a marketeer because that's what you are um, driven to do because of the I think nature that's of interesting, this interesting job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think driven to, but I think you've explained it brilliantly that actually it may be the culture of where you work that you're almost prevented from joining those digital KPIs to those of the business. I mean, certainly a lot of the, the organizations I work with um, there's this real sense of frustration is that they are not having um, the business plans or the business strategy or to your point the P&L shared with them so they're not able to make those links which I think you know back to everybody listening if you're in that function you have that power the the sooner you teach everybody to read a P&L the sooner you can relate their KPIs to the difference to a PL, the more healthy the business. So I think that's just such an important point. So many businesses, it doesn't happen. And then the other one I love is that, you know, talking about the way modern businesses are, are changing and the functions. And actually, I think what you're really saying is that we'll all become, we won't be CMOs or CSOs, you know, we'll be chief revenue officers going forwards if we're a generalist and mm -hmm. they're the ones that will become MDs. But I agree with you that very technical will stay very technical um, because they have to, because it's changing so fast. Um, but what about the role of a chief experience officer? Because you, you mentioned, and I, you know, passionate about customers and they are the lifeblood of the company. Um, where, where does that sit? Do you think you need a separate function as a, a chief, you know, chief customer experience officer or, where does it I, sit? It's, it's, a, it's a nice one. I, I've never heard the chief experience officer, but I, I love it. I, I understood that now the marketeers are more and more chief growth officer, which, uh, which I, I think it's quite telling. And it says, I think exactly what we said so far, which is a marketeer is in charge and responsible at the end of the day of the growth of the, of the business. Um, my point on this is that the more you will create those kind of different functions, the more diluted is your strategy because I think that it's a bit like the customer service department. That's what I say to the team. Yes, there is a customer service department, but at the end of the day, we are all customer service minded. We have to be customer service minded. If we're not, then we're not doing properly our job. 
So I think the experience one, the chief experience officer one is about, about the same. If we're not all absolutely obsessed with delivering the, the best in class customer experience, then we're failing at, 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 well, at our job, whatever, whatever it is. Um, having said that, I think that you might need a market here that em embodies, I would say, um, the experience, the customer experience that we, we, we want to deliver. So maybe it's a change of wording and then the chief marketing officer is more a chief experience officer, um, depending again on the size of the organization. But I tend to think that the more silos you create, the less efficient you are. It's, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, what you've just described there is, is bang on in terms of cultural values. And it's so bleeding obvious, but it's so often missed. And, and it's back to Shane's point, actually, around that, that P&L is, look, rather than, and you, Stella, you articulated it very well, that you can be ambitious and um, you certainly don't, shouldn't expect things to land in your lap. I've taken that from what you've said. And, and I think that gets leveled at every generation. It'd be really easy for us to say, oh, this new generation, they just expect it to be handed to them. But I think that's been every generation uh, as we've been. Um, so go out and try and proactively learn PLL. Shane's point is, well, actually, if you're a leader and you're a good one, start to proactively share and, and help them do it. And, and that extends what you've just said is the articulation of we're all customer service agents is not an egotistical thing. It's a brilliant piece of leadership that doesn't matter what your role is, we all care about the customer because frankly, without the customer, we are nothing. We're, we're not even a chance of spending money, let alone making money. Um, listen, I, I'm, we're conscious we've o o emptied your brain on, on a number of topics, but I would feel remiss if we didn't wind back uh, to your to one of your passions, you know, the teaching, which obviously you've, you've kept that teaching thread, um, thread as you've been. And it sounds very much in the role you're in now, you, you know, you, you teach and advocate your, your team. Um, your colleagues um but but literature as well um we always look for good books i mentioned that daniel h pink book what about books estelle anything that you've been reading that um or you've read that you think actually in the context of today would be a really interesting recommendation for people to take away sure yeah as much as i'd love to read much more than i than, than i am today um i have a few books who, who really um made a, an impact on me and one of them is called Think and Grow Rich by uh, Napoleon Hill. Uh, Napoleon, I, th I don't think he's French, but uh, I know that the name sounds French. Um, and I love it. I loved it. And I've read it a, a few years ago. And, and with a new perspective of, of COVID crisis, I think it makes a lot of sense to reread it. And I would definitely advise, it, uh, advise this, this reading. First reason is it's one of the first um, personal development slash management leadership uh, books that have been written because that was just after the Great Depression in 1937. So I think the crises, as terrible as they are, always brings a kind of new perspective after to reinvent yourself. And, and the key learning of this book is about the power of your thought. And it's about if you really want to achieve a goal and the, the title is really about how to make money but it's much broader than that it's really about how to succeed and, and success means something different for, for for myself for you steve or for you shane so whatever success you want to achieve it's all about what do you want to put in your brain in terms of thoughts how do you want to control your thoughts and if you know i remember some anecdotes that were very good like 
if you really want something, just put post-its, uh, write it and put it everywhere in your house or write it every single day in, in your journaling process. Write the fact that you want to be an MD or you want to have a happy family or whatever is your success. And, and it's very powerful because I think a lot of people have written, I've read a lot and I've written a lot about this, but the way it's put, uh, it's, it's quite a, uh, it's not a very long book. It's extremely powerful and it gives you, what I like, it's very pragmatic. It, it gives you tips and, and homework on how you want to make it happen in your life. That sounds a great recommendation. And I love the fact um, that it sounds like a, a book very much for now, but it was written in 1937 um, those lessons from the past which are just as applicable and that power of positive thinking is I think so important for all of us so on that note and sort of being very positive and looking forward um, your preparation for if you like a lot of unknowns in 2021 with your sort of MD hat on any any things in terms of your applying that positive thinking Estelle to uh, what you're doing and your team and your culture and your market Sure. I think, again, I might be, um, I don't want to sound over optimistic because that would be very disruptive with what everybody's saying today. But I think that like any crisis, and this is not any crisis that we are experiencing today, it's extremely terrible, obviously, but it gives to all of us individually, but also for organizations to reinvent yourself. And this is not you don't have a lot of opportunities like that in your life. And I think from a business point of view, this creates a lot of, uh, this will create a lot of opportunities uh, to reinvent the travel industry, to reinvent your, your product, your customer delivery, according to new customers' expectations. Um, that will also clean up in a way the competition uh, of the landscape because like any crisis, there will be winners, there will be losers. So kind of like all the, the cards of the game are redistributed again. So it is a kind of reset. Um, I think this word has been used a lot, but I think it's probably the most relevant one. And individually about, I think everybody had time or hopefully had time to reflect on what is important in their life. And again, you might want to see 2021 as the year where you implement the changes that you have uh, thought about and that you have reflected on in 2020. And that's how I, I see things. And, and that's how I try to coach and, and, and share with the teams about what will be the great opportunities that will await for us next year and how individually we have grown so much. We are not even aware yet, but we have grown so much in terms of resilience and ability to accept the fact that 100% or 99% of things that are happening today are out of our control in a very controlling world that's quite um, exceptional, I would say. It's really interesting. It's a really nice way of putting it. It sounds very positive. For, as you said, it's been very uh, turmoilic times for so many people in so many industries. Uh, and you talk about next year and hope. Um, again, maybe a final question before we, we let you get back to your to your day job. But you're both a foreign trade advisor for the France in the UK and you sit on the French Chamber of Great Britain. And I'm, although we have a very wide arc of listeners, there will be a lot of people still listening in that are in the UK. Uh, and they'd be fascinated to hear a non-UK's view on January the 1st, if I can use the dreaded B word and Brexit. 
any good news on that front do you think from from your side um so again i might sound very disruptive because i don't want to to be the one carrying or sharing the gloomy news about how brexit will be a, a massive car crash um for the uk for the next 10 years that's a, not what I believe in, and B, I don't think this is very useful for anyone, especially now. Um, but to be, to be honest, from what I've heard and, and read and, and talked to different stakeholders recently, I do believe that it will not be probably as bad as expected. Uh, again, that might be a wishful thinking, so hope that I'm not uh, jinxing anything. But We won't I hold think... you to it, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, no, I do think that one of the key strengths of British that is very well known, at least from an international point of view, is the negotiation skills and talent. And because of that, I do strongly believe that the British government will manage to negotiate, maybe at the very, very last minute, they will manage to negotiate at least what they wanted and maybe even more than what they wanted. And I think it will give them an opportunity to, again, get the best of both. I, I'm saying again, because that was more or less the case when they had a position in Europe, because you know, you, you kept your own currency. So it was a bit of best of both worlds position. And I think that will be more or less the same. You will keep, and I should just say we, because I'm also now having the, the British citizenship, um, but we will have the, the opportunity to, uh, to trade with Europe still because agreements will be found. And then it will give the opportunity to the UK, UK to have more freedom in trading with the rest of the world um, and to be maybe much more autonomous and, and faster in terms of making decisions about policies, etc. Uh, in, the, in the UK. Um, talking to an epidemiologist recently, she said maybe some ideas about vaccine coming earlier in the UK than that, that, rather than the rest of Europe is something that is on the table because, again, you out, we are out of the, the EU. Um, so at the end of the day, I'm not saying it's going to be a, a walk in the park and that's going to be easy. Uh, there will be a lot of bumps. I think there is a lot of uncertainty again on how things will happen but I think I believe and I trust British people to be not only good negotiators but being be very pragmatic people to make things as smooth as possible and as efficient as possible um, that's how I, what I believe so Estelle, clearly as a British citizen, you're just demonstrating um, that you truly have got those pragmatic characteristics <laughs> as well. Um, and I think, you know, those words of wisdom about whatever your views were, however you came into this, it, it's a reset button for all of us. And it's about seeing the positive and seeing the opportunities. And I can't think of a nicer way to say thank you um, for inspiring us all to I've written down, implement the changes you want to make. Um, we have the power to change things more than we think sometimes. And I think that's made me think a lot. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Steve. That was a, a lovely, interesting chat. Wow, Shane. What a fascinating, fascinating person. Fascinating journey. So much. How does one start to unpack and summarise all that Estelle's just given us? as you said, loads. Um, for me, it's that reminder and actually written big note to myself. Yeah. You know, look at the people.
and that your marketing KPIs and are they really integrated in the way they should be? Are they aligned or actually are they working against each other? And I think going into next year, I loved that it's a reset button, you know, for whatever reason, you know, but see the positive and and I am excited about next year. Who knows? I might be back on a plane or maybe I won't be, but I've still got lots to be positive about. Yeah, well, life is a journey, isn't it? And yes, quite selfishly. And and maybe Estelle's convinced us, not only if we get on a plane, chain, I certainly know the brand that I might talk to about my holidays in the Med or further afield. So thank you to Estelle. Um, just so much to take. And I'm sure a lot of what Estelle has just articulated to us probably just seems like common sense. But it really made the point to me about how uh, the sliding doors moments as she articulated of when you, you have those realizations and then on top of that how just everything you do is helping you to the next step you, you may not realize it at the time but the good and the bad it certainly arms you with skills that will always become useful down the line even if you don't quite know when where or for what reason and I think you've also been a virtually bought up the stock of um, Think and Grow Rich, but there are still a few copies left on Amazon for us. There are, yes. Well, I, I bought a copy while Estelle was telling us about it. And there were readers, only 10 copies at the time that I did it. Now, I'm sure Amazon have lots of shelf space, so it may be back, but uh, work fast and get a copy of that book. Uh, that's the best 1937 book recommendation I've had in a long time. And I look forward to reading that uh, very soon. I also look sh forward, Shane, to speaking with you and our next guest very soon. But perhaps we'll call it a day. So, Shane, thank you very much to you. Um, thank you mostly to Estelle for her brilliant insight. Incredibly valuable. I'm sure you agree. Uh, but let us know if you agree. Um, drop us a comment. Remember, www.podcast.co.uk will take you through to our LinkedIn homepage where you can not only comment, share your thoughts on that book or mostly on what Estelle's managed to share with us today. Equally, you can pick up all the other episodes on that platform as well as on Spotify, on SoundCloud, on Apple Music, etc. if you'd rather dig through that way. But whatever you want to do, keep on learning, keep on listening, and we'll be with you soon. Thanks, everyone.